0: This episode is brought to you by DNA Fit, providers of state-of-the-art genetic testing. Their services build a roadmap for your individualized health, fitness, and lifestyle goals by testing the genetic markers that make you unique. As a podcast listener, you get 30% off by going to DNAFit.com and using the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout. Also brought to you by Primal Mayo, made with pure avocado oil, organic cage-free eggs, rosemary extract, vinegar derived from non-GMO beets, and a dash of salt. You can turn any traditional dish into a superfood with just one serving healthy mayo who knew welcome to the primal blueprint podcast featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things primal including q a sessions with primal blueprint founder mark sisson special guest interviews hosted by mark sisson and conversations with primal blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, introducing your host, L Russ.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have a great interesting guest diana rogers who is a farmer nutritional therapist and author of two great paleo books the first one is paleo lunches and breakfasts on the go and her latest book the homegrown paleo cookbook you can find out more about diana at radiancenutrition.com or check out her blog sustainabledish.com welcome to the show diana hi how are you Good. I'm really excited about this new book you have, Homegrown Paleo Cookbook. This is really like no other out there. It's not only a beautiful coffee table cookbook, but it's an amazing Bible and manual on sustainability. I mean, you teach people how to properly and humanely raise chickens, pigs, sheep, and more, and we're going to get into that later. But I'd love the audience to hear about how you even became a farmer and got into the paleo world because you spent a long time undiagnosed with celiac, and that led you here. So tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so as a kid growing up, I was pretty underweight. The doctors thought that I had a lactose intolerance, which was partially true, and told my parents to give me soy formula and just stick with everything else, just no milk. Uh, So that's what I did. I drank diluted soy formula because you couldn't even buy soy milk at the time in the 80s when I was a kid. And so I spent a long time very underweight. Pretty much everything I ate just went straight through me. And I had low muscle tone. Sports were really hard for me. And it wasn't until I was 26 and had a new job, new health insurance, and went in for a physical that the doctor who I met with, who was kind of fresh out of school and really bright, just spent like an hour with me, which I thought was like... Rare. Yeah. I was like, why are you talking to me so much? This isn't how it normally goes. And she just kept asking me questions about my digestion And my answer was like, well, it's probably just IBS or nerves or stress. I don't know. But, you know, I had lactose intolerance as a kid. And I don't know. My stomach bothers me every day, but it's probably just nerves because that's what we're sort of conditioned to think. Or that was your normal. So you didn't know much different. I had no idea. And so she said, I'm just going to test you for sprue. She kept calling it sprue. So this was um, maybe 15 or 16 years ago. And... Sure enough, the blood test came back like screaming positive. And I just was like, what is this? And I did some research and I was like, oh no, how can anyone not eat wheat? Like it's what I live on. So
1: you must've thought that was a death sentence at the time.
2: (laughs) At the time. Yeah. Because there was really poor options for gluten-free and I didn't have a whole lot of nutrition education. I've always been interested in nutrition, but You know, I was, you know, following mostly vegetarian, low fat, lots of whole grains, lots of deep fried tofu, (laughs) um, that kind of diet. And so I went and I did get the biopsy that confirmed that I had pretty much flattened villi, which are the little uh, finger like projections in your intestine that your body attacks when you have celiac disease. And so I, just two weeks on a gluten, oh, I have to back up and say that um, I was so devastated that I actually, I think I found out on like a Friday and I had a weekend with wheat. I was going to say,
1: I was going to say, I hope you really went to town on Sunday. I did.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I ate like all my favorite foods just for one last weekend. Um, So cake and, you know, all that stuff, pasta, pizza, everything. And then, you know, started that Monday and it really, it only took about two weeks and my life went from like black and white to color. It really, I just had no idea that you didn't have to be doubled over in pain all the time. I mean, I had gone to the emergency room with such intense abdominal pain and been told, it's nothing so many times sure. that, um, you know, I just, I didn't believe it anymore. Anyway.
1: But for many years following this diagnosis, even though you were gluten-free talk about your, yeah. your gluten-free diet that you yes. have going on. Cause that's so, really uh, frightening for the people who know paleo foods are going to, are going to just be in disbelief.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm taking a sip of tea cause I've had, uh, the seasonal allergies for me this year of no other years have been uh, really intense. Anyhow, yeah, so I basically went from a crappy low fat processed food standard American diet to a gluten free processed food version of that. So, and I also have to add that um, one of my jobs during this time that I was gluten free was approving the gluten free products that would be sold in one of the nation's largest natural foods. Chains. So and those uh, products
1: are usually boxed. (laughs) Yeah. And (laughs) with and and junky, right? Yeah. So
2: I went from, you know, toast a sandwich and pasta for dinner to gluten-free toast, gluten-free sandwich, and gluten-free pasta for dinner. And, you know, the dietitian that I saw at the time, you know, just handed me a bunch of coupons for a whole bunch of frozen gluten-free dinners and said, you know, just kind of do what you're doing and maybe you should drink some Ensure because you're really depleted. So at the time I was also like pre-diabetic and I wasn't. I was going to say,
1: your your breakfast here sounds pre-diabetic, gluten-free toast with a banana and a glass of orange juice. Like that was how you would start your day. So you didn't know even that aspect of anything yet. Yeah,
2: No. And you know, unfortunately that's that's, you know, I'm just finishing up, I think I was talking to you earlier about this, but I'm just finishing up my training as a registered dietitian and that's that kind of breakfast is completely acceptable to the training that I just received.
0: Sure,
1: because so that's, that's the th- conventional flawed, you know –
2: Yeah. Someone
1: asked me recently, they said, I can't believe orange juice is not healthy. This is blowing my mind. And I'm like, orange juice is one of the worst things you can jam right down your throat. But so, yeah. So move on. Let's hear more about, you know, this discovery.
2: Yeah. So, and I have to also mention too, that although I was pre-diabetic and eating such a junky diet, I was very thin. Like I, I really, to look at me now versus then, like I'm the same size pretty much. And and so physically, I really, I, I look pretty close to how I looked even, like, when I was first diagnosed. And so I wasn't presenting classically with celiac at the time, and, you know, I think some people just sort of assume that, you know, uh, celiac is way underweight, which is just not true. And, and pre-diabetic is overweight, which is also not true. So just thought right. I'd add that in be there. Skinny
1: fat. And that's even a worst form of type two in that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. But go ahead.
2: Yeah. So, so I was doing my gluten-free uh, processed crappy diet for quite a long time. And I was also a spinning instructor. So I was getting on all my cardio and (laughs) I couldn't figure out why (laughs) I needed to eat every two hours, like, or else, like, or else seriously, I would have like tunnel vision. I'd get shaky. I'd get really sweaty. And, you know, so I had my bag just stuffed with gluten-free granola bars (laughs) and things like that. And I decided to go back to school and study nutrition at a program called Nutritional Therapy Association. So, you know, kind of like a, it's it's pretty much rooted in Weston A. Price. So it's it's pretty pretty great as a as a foundation. And towards the, you know, I was doing my grains and I was soaking them. I was starting to eat more butter, which I needed to hear like a hundred times before I would actually eat butter. And I I was feeling a little better, but not much. And then towards the end, we had to do a book report and we could pick, you know, a nutrition book to read and kind of report on. And so I read The Paleo Solution by Rob Wolf. How lucky. Yeah. Uh, It had just come out. So this was like 2010. And I decided to give it a try and I was so scared because I had to, you know, I, my interpretation of it at the time was, oh oh my God, this is no carbs. Because to me, like even a vegetable as a carb was like, that's not, you know, that's not my pasta.
1: (laughs) Didn't count for you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I tried it. I thought, why not? And I tried it and I have to say, I was pretty tired for the first couple of weeks. I think just sort of the detox of the carbs
1: and the transition to be a fat burner. Yeah. It can be an exhausting thing, yeah. Right, and
2: I and I, I have to admit too that I've never really had a sweet tooth, so it wasn't like I was eating tons of candy. It was just really the breads and the... or the gluten-free breads and rice and all that kind of stuff. And I just after about two and a half weeks on that, I just woke up and I could not believe basically my food addictions were completely gone. So I could go. Yeah. We talked, we talk about that a lot and it's because of that
1: sugar burning cycle and whether you're here's where the misconception comes in is that just because someone doesn't like sweets. Well, if you're going to town on pasta and carbs, that's really no different. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. It's sugar. It doesn't seem like it did not package like it. It's the same thing as skinny diabetic. It's, it's again, what we think, but that's the way it is. Right. So, yeah, that uh, it feels like a million bucks.
2: Right. So I just I couldn't believe it. Basically, dinner was just whatever was in the fridge. So it went from you know, oh my god, I have to have you know, whatever it was, lasagna for dinner. And I and I would really, I would wake up thinking about it. I would, yep. um, I've always been a foodie. So, you know, okay, what am I going to make? And I'd like look through the magazines and get all excited and not be ha- happy until I went home and, you know, had a big mouthful of whatever casserole with lots of cheese on it and everything. And now, I mean, really my life has changed so much. I now dinner is just whatever thawed meat that I have from our pigs or lamb or or frozen beef I have in the freezer. It's whatever meat and whatever vegetable we have growing, and that's dinner. And it's just not a non-issue. It's just food is food. Breakfast this morning was... I had a big piece of swordfish with some broccoli. I love eating fish for breakfast. I love eating fish for breakfast. Yeah. Yeah, especially like a nice fatty fish like salmon or swordfish. It's so nice. And then, you know, I had a side of veggies with a little bit of pesto on them. And that was breakfast.
1: Delicious.
2: So it's really. into
1: your farming actually here. Um, But before we do, there's a, your book is beautiful, by the way. The photos, the layout. I mean, it would be such a great gift for anybody that's into paleo. So the Homegrown Paleo Cookbook is what we're talking about. But it's more than that. I like the quote at the beginning. Tell us that quote and then let, let us lead into you know your farming experience.
2: Sure. So the quote I think you're talking about is from Wendell Berry, who has written a, a lot of really incredible books. And I list them in the, in the end, um, the unsettling of America is really what propelled my husband and I into, you know, changing our lives. We did not grow up as farmers. So anyhow, so the quote is to be interested in food, but not in food production is clearly absurd.
1: Yeah, that's so well said.
2: Yeah, so I think I think what I've, you know, I've been in the paleo scene for a little bit of time now. I've uh, attended the very first Ancestral Health Symposium. I've been to everyone. I've been to every Paleo FX. And I've really seen a nice transition from where it had started to now. And I think particularly at the last Paleo FX, people are really moving on from it just being, sort of this low carb diet to something much bigger than that and much broader than that. And so the intent of my book was really to help people understand more about food production. So not necessarily, I mean, it is a manual and I hope people take it and, you know, they can definitely use it to start a backyard chicken flock or have some goats or grow their own tomatoes in their backyard with raised beds. And I explain how to create great soil and have a compost pile and all these things. But I'm really hoping that even if someone, you know, like most people live in an urban area and maybe they have a nine to five job and they're not in a position to maybe right now grow their own food, at least they'll have better questions when they go to the farmer's market and they won't say things like, is this grass fed chicken? (laughs) Or, (laughs) you know, or maybe they might think twice, you know, like I remember I I have a a great foodie blog friend, blogger friend, and I won't out who it is, but she and I um, travel together frequently and we walked into um, Italy in Chicago. So the Mario Bataldi concept, uh, which is like this really cool store. And she's like, oh, look at all those mushrooms. And it was the first thing we saw was all these beautiful, really exotic mushrooms. And she's looking at the mushrooms and I'm looking at the country of origin, like really, do we really need turkish mushrooms like you know why is this happening so anyhow so i'm just hoping that people you know maybe start with step one which might be to try for a week to buy everything from the farmer's market and just eat from the farmer's market and really connect more with their food
1: and inquire ask where it's from Mm -hmm. and ask questions
2: yeah
0: Um, hey it's brad kearns to talk about our partner on the podcast dnafit.com Cutting edge genetic testing to identify your particular diet and exercise attributes and optimal lifestyle behaviors to align with your genetic expectations. It's great stuff. Try it out very simple process you send a swab sample through the mail and receive by email a detailed written printout and graphic representation of all your genetic particulars that will help you inform the ideal diet and exercise practices that align with optimal gene expression take advantage of their 30 percent discount on their comprehensive package just for listening to the podcast enter the code primal blueprint at dnafit.com
1: I want to bring up a topic, I think you touch on it, and the way you describe it in your book is great, and I'm not going to be able to do it justice, but sort of the least harm principle, and talking about, let's look Mm -hmm. at that argument on the vegan-vegetarian side of feeling like that's more of a sustainable, can you talk about the sort of dark side of that world, and you know what I mean, it's just really fascinating, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do it any justice.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of organizations and people that have really strong feelings that vegetarian is not only the most healthful way to eat, but also the most sustainable way to eat. And I really try to break down those myths. And uh, Lear Keith has a fantastic book called The Vegetarian Myth that I think everyone should read, who is paleo, because she really lived uh, vegan for quite some time and then came to a realization that it was not only killing her health, but it was not ethically, politically or morally the right way to live. And so what you're talking about, the theory of least harm. So that's, you know, there's different reasons why people become vegetarian, right? Or, or choose to be vegan.
1: Sure. And aside from the food aspects or why it may not be the best, according to our opinion, I'm more interested in that side of the agriculture part of it. Yeah. It's really fascinating.
2: Yeah. Well, so there's right. So the health benefits are clear that meat is more bioavailable. I mean, even the standard, American Academy of Dietetics, meat is more bioavailable as a protein source than vegetables. So that there's no argument there at Absolutely. all. Um, so then what we are looking at is these sustainability arguments like, well, the, there's a sustainability and then that's the moral, right? So why? So the moral is why kill an animal if you don't have to? So, And that's right. what really tugs on people's heartstrings and tends to win in these debates. Like you see these debates between... Like there was one with you know some really famous vegan people, and then I remember Joel Salatin, and there was someone else on there with them, and the the moral argument they kind of that's where they fell apart. So these these folks are saying, well, you know, if I don't have to kill an animal to live, why should I? What you know, if I can survive on just vegetables, then you know, it makes me feel better and. The problem is in industrial agriculture, if you're if you're equating a, a the life of a cow, right, like let's look at mammals. And so the life of a cow is equal to a field mouse because it's a mammal and a mammal.
1: Right. Alive, alive. It's alive, right. it's alive. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. um, so one grass-fed cow could feed a family for quite some time, right? And it does very minimal impact on the sustainability front, which I can talk about in a second. And, you know, you're killing one life. Versus... All of those field mice that are dying as sort of by factors, like innocent by factors, in the process of farming this monocrop model. And so, when you think about all the tractors that are going through and all that heavy equipment that's needed to create all these grains and soybeans and things like this. Um, we've got pesticides that are used because most of that stuff's GMO. And so we're killing a lot of them through just poisoning them. But and then, then a lot of just, like you said, living things
1: are killed by intensive crop production. It's sort of unavoidable, mm-hmm. whether it's accident with the tractor, you know, not necessarily intentionally looking at something and bulldozing over it, or whether it's actively shooting an animal to protect a soy field. So, right. You can't get away from it, right? You can't get away. Right, so I mean, it's either
2: you know. So it's the same thing as you know, a meat eater saying, "Well, I can never kill a cow." You know, it's like, "Well, you're eating a cow," and and so it's the same. Whether you do it by
1: proxy or whether you do it yourself, it doesn't matter. It's the
2: same argument, right? So so whether whether you don't want to kill a mouse and you you know save the ones from your house and like gently put them outside, it's still gonna die. And so um, there really just isn't much of an argument there when you look at this theory of least harm. And I give a, a citation for that. So
1: yeah, there's a quote here from uh, Stephen Davis of Oregon State University in your mm-hmm. book where he estimates 1.8 billion animals would be killed annually to support a plant based diet.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, yeah. Maybe it, debatable, but that's still. Right. Yeah. So maybe yeah. his numbers are debatable, but. Still, I mean, we're looking at, so we've got all these factors. We've got the heavy equipment that's going through the fields. We've got all the pesticides and herbicides that are being used that are poisoning, you know, not only directly the, the mouse that's living in that field, but also po- poisoning waterways that are, you know, supporting, you know, you've got all these algae blooms where there should be fish you know, living and all this kind of stuff. Sure. So really what we're looking at then, if we, you know, consider that, you know, animals are gonna die, what animals should die in order to, you know, help me live? And, you know, honestly, a grass fed cow or any other herbivore is really the best choice because they're larger um, so killing one life can support you longer. They don't necessarily have to require a lot of human input. So you know herbivores eat grass and you can choose to eat herbivores that actually are raised on grass. And then you know there's a lot of other environmental arguments that can be shot down pretty easily as far as you know methane production and carbon, you know, cutting down the rainforest is it's really, most of those rainforests being cut down are actually to grow grains to feed factory farmed animals. And so the grass fed herbivores are really the way to go as far as the moral and the sustainability argument.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess the end point there, just the button being, you know, vegan vegetarian diet is not a bloodless one, right. bottom line, no matter how you look at it. Um, I really would like you to get into a discussion of sort of this, you know, vacant land and your sort of call to land needs to be used and not locked up. Can you talk about how, you know, pasture like herbivores mm-hmm. break down the grasses and fertilize? This is very fascinating. Can you talk about the subject you bring up, land needs to be used and not locked up in order to stay healthy?
2: Sure, yeah. So I happen to live in this beautiful town in Massachusetts that has a lot of conservation land. And I think people really like to see land locked up. They like to see these pastoral, you know, beautiful grasslands with maybe the woods along the edges. And they don't really want it used. And the, the fact is land has to be used in order to be cared for properly. So, you know, way back, you know, before we had all these homes and we ran out all of the wildlife that was here, the trampling of the feet of these like large bison across North America actually helped improve the soil. So the herbivores need to chew down the grass in order to stimulate healthy growth uh, because it needs to be cut, so just picture like a lawnmower, yep. and then it needs to rest for a little bit. And also, while it's being chewed on, it's also getting peed on, so it's it's getting more uh, <laughs> liquid. So you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, well, you know, cows require a lot of water," and it's like, "Well, you know, there's a difference between irrigating crops." which, you know, goes to feed the crop and a lot of it just kind of evaporates. Or if you actually water a cow, a lot of that comes back into the land as urine. So which actually helps fertilize the ground. And then of course their manure really helps get those great um, microbes back into the soil and all that organic matter that helps build great soil. So we need their feet to kind of Aerate the soil a little bit. We need their poop to get into the soil to help build healthier soil. We need their uh, urine to moisturize it in addition to rainfall. And then we need them to be eating it to cut it down. And then we need it to rest. So that's where, you know, this rotational grazing, intensive rotational grazing, like the mob grazing theory that Joel Soliton uses down at Polyface Farm, or the holistic planned management, which is Alan Savory's theory. Both of those are quite similar. And the whole idea is that you graze animals intensively and that you let the land rest for a little bit right afterwards. And, you know, coincidentally, that's also healthier for the animals because I'm sure many people have seen, you know, a big paddock and just the animals just kind of let to graze wherever they want. And the reason why that doesn't work is because the animals tend to just graze their favorite, overgraze their favorite little patch of clover or whatever and not eat down all the other grasses and weeds and everything that are growing in the field. And also, if there's any parasite load, they're eating it again. So that's really a problem. And so what we do on our farm is we graze our herbivores, which we have goats and sheep. And so we're, we're moving them around the farm. And then right after that fall um, comes the chickens and the chickens actually love to eat parasites. And so it keeps the parasite load down in the animals. The chickens get some healthy worms to eat and the ground gets fertilized along the way. So it's really, it's the best way to, it's the most sustainable way to raise animals.
1: That's really fascinating. T- tell us about your farm because you're not just farming for yourself, mm-hmm. right?
2: Yep. Uh, we're, we, so we're in a town called Carlisle, Massachusetts, which is outside of Boston near Concord. So it's, it's a, a really beautiful suburb of Boston. And we raise vegetables for our CSA. So it's a community-supported agriculture organization. So people pay up front for their share of the harvest, And then each week during the growing season, they get their dividend or their distribution once a week. So we run ours for uh, usually from about June until the end of October. And members come each week and they, they get their, you know, five heads of lettuce or, you know, whatever we have growing that week, we tell them what they get to pick up. So we do that in the, with the vegetables. We also sell to one restaurant here in Concord called Woods Hill Table, which happens if anyone's listening in the area and wants to try an amazing restaurant, they, it's, it's very paleo friendly. They use great oils. Like they have tallow French fries and Love that. all kinds of good stuff like that. So we sell to them and we sell them weeds too. We sell them nettle, we sell them lamb's quarters and their chef there uses everything that we provide them and all their meats grass fed. So the owner herself has her own farm.
1: That sounds amazing. So,
2: and then we we do pasture raised pork. So this year we have Tamworth pigs and Berkshire pigs that we're raising. We raise them in the woods. Um, they run through the woods all season and we sell those through a CSA as well. So people can sign up to buy 40 pounds of pork and then we do lamb and goat meat as well. And we're also building a farm stand this year. So people can visit our farm stand as well and, you know, buy that way. So because the CSA model doesn't work for everybody. not Unfortunately, not everybody loves every vegetable or wants, you know, two gigantic bags of vegetables. Maybe they're traveling or whatever. So CSA is a great a great model if you're around and you like to cook and, you know, other people just need to kind of slowly get into it. And so we're offering, you know, a la carte at a farm stand as well.
1: Do you ship it all or not at this point?
2: We know we don't. So they, and we don't deliver either for the CSA. It is right here, but I know in other parts of the country, specifically in California, a lot of the CSAs are sort of a drop box kind of thing. But we really love the fact that people have to come here because it really creates a stronger connection. We have a really high retention rate. People are really, really happy. And part of that is because they develop a relationship with us and we know their names and we have a lot of pick your own crops. So we, we pre-harvest things like lettuce and beets and carrots and things like that. But then some of the items that are really high labor, like cherry tomatoes, herbs, string beans those things are pick your own so they go out with their kids into the fields we tell them where to go and how much to pick and they're they're out there so we see them we see them every week i love that it goes back to
1: the original quote too what a connection to the food you're eating when you are showing up at the farm i mean versus a drop box it's even that much of a deeper uh, awareness i love it
2: yeah, and we also, w- there is an elementary, well, a K through eight school that's walkable from here. And we have worked out an agreement with the principal there where every grade comes to our farm from kindergarten up through eighth grade three times a year. Oh, and, for an
1: educational field mm-hmm, trip? Yeah, that's
2: great. And our goal isn't really to convert all these people to farmers because that's unrealistic, right? And it's not going to happen. <laughs> But, you know, this town churns out a whole lot of doctors and lawyers and other, you know, executives. And our goal is if, you know, studies have shown if these kids have a really strong connection with nature during childhood, that they'll be environmentalists when they grow up. And so they'll remember fondly the farm. And hopefully when they become very important people later in their life, they'll be much more likely to, you know, want to – you know, support environmental causes.
1: That is so great. I want to throw out a couple of these recipes in your book that look amazing. Mm-hmm. Just to give people an idea of the kind of things they could find in there, it's really an amazing. I can't wait to try some of the recipes. But a couple that really caught my eye were um, the maple spiced venison jerky. That mm-hmm. sounded unreal, and then lamb chops with fresh ginger herb sauce. And I love this next one, which I think I might have to go to first. Deconstructed BLT soup. If that's not a paleo, (laughs) if that's not like a paleo uh, beacon, just calling you to it. We talked a lot about sustainability. And I mean, you do get detailed, like we talked about in your book, caring for gardens, composting, crop rotation, you teach people how to clean the hooves of a goat. I mean, you get into <laughs> it. But, but it's also just a beautiful, beautiful photos of nature, animals and food. And then the second half is really all these beautiful recipes. Mm-hmm. So I just want to throw that out there as well, that recipe aspect. So even if you're not interested in being a farmer, it, this is not what the book's all about, but it makes a great coffee table book because of that information and the way you aesthetically display it, you know, you, people come over and flip through and they might learn something.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, the, the other part that I really, you know, would love to do a whole book just on itself is the lifestyle section at the end. So, you know, the pieces where I talk about basically like the importance of free play for kids, which I know Mark Sisson is really into, but the whole idea of like, not overscheduling your kids and letting them, you know, have free time in nature, Um, the importance of being out in nature. I talk about how to go camping with your kids. And there's, you know, how to build a fairy house. There's all these kinds of like fun crafts. You know, one thing I've noticed in my nutrition practice is that moms just love baking with their kids. Like, that's like such a bonding experience. And when when I talk to a mom about the fact that, you know, I I don't even really advise them to make like paleo muffins or things like that. I, you know, we talk about just kind of cutting all that stuff out. And they're like, but I love baking. And it's, you know, it's so important to me to you know, bake with my daughter and it's it's such a bonding experience. And I offer alternatives to that, like making naturally dyed Easter eggs or making your own candles or making your own soap. So just kind of other ways that you can still kind of be crafty. And I mean, making your own soap is actually... You know, the steps involved are quite similar to baking brownies or something like that.
1: Yeah. And it's such a fun thing for kids, and you can scent them each differently. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's such a fun project. For
2: yeah. Kids. So just kind of the idea of like really shifting away. Cause I think paleo to me is so much bigger than just, you know, eating some chicken breast and some steamed broccoli. And, you know, it's really a whole entire lifestyle movement. And so I was hoping to well, I did in the book. (laughs) You did convey
1: it. You definitely did convey it. And it is really a Bible slash manual sort of kind of all things paleo. I mean, it's great. So again, the homegrown paleo cookbook, you can find it online. And I just want to mention your two websites one more time, nutrition.com or your blog, sustainabledish.com.
2: Anything else you'd like to share before we finish this one up? No, I mean, I guess I just, I hope that people check it out and get inspired to get connected, you know, whether that's maybe volunteering on a farm. There's so many ways that even, you know, folks that are more urban can, you know, keeping bees on a rooftop or starting a community garden you know there's so many opportunities even if you don't think there are for you to get your hands dirty and really learn about food production and you do talk about
1: beekeeping in your book as well so if Mm -hmm. anyone is interested everything you need to sort of do it yourself in terms of paleo is really in your book thank you so much for joining us i'm sure the book's going to be a great success and everyone check it out homegrown paleo
0: cookbook thank you in a supermarket full of mayo options how do you know which one to pick Well, there's an easy answer, the one that tastes good and is good for you. But here's the problem. Almost all store-bought mayonnaise contains industrial seed oils or eggs raised from hens treated with added hormones and antibiotics. Not exactly the best recipe for good health. Luckily, there's a new mayo creating a ton of buzz. It's called Primal Kitchen Mayo and contains only the finest superfood ingredients, including all-natural avocado oil and organic cage-free eggs. So no more trading good health for great taste. Go to PrimalBlueprint.com today and pick up a three-pack. As an added bonus to while supplies last, enter the code FREEBOOK at checkout to receive a free copy of Mark Sisson's Healthy Sauces, Dressings, and Toppings Cookbook with any three-pack mayo order.